the word of God where it says, When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfil what was said through the prophet Isaiah, Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, having their seizures, those having seizures and the paralysed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea and the region across the Jordan followed him. I'll pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the authority that it is that it would speak to us. And so, Lord, that's our prayer this morning, that you would speak through your servant, Carl, as he would proclaim your word and that we would receive it with hearts that would respond. So, Lord, we pray for your spirit to do his work amongst us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know uh, how many of you have heard of the author Bill Bryson. I can see some people nodding and shaking their heads. And all Bill Bryson is, uh, is a travel writer, but uh, recently he wrote a book about the home, a short history of the house. Uh, it's a, it's a fascinating book and, a, and quite a funny book really, strangely enough for a book about a house. But anyway, uh, in that book uh, he tells the story of how in 1939 uh, at the outbreak uh, of war with Germany, uh, Great Britain introduced a series of stringent blackout measures. For three months it was illegal to have a light of any kind uh, showing at night. Uh, drivers had to drive without no light whatsoever. You might have seen pictures from the war of, of, of headlamps being kind of slightly covered. Well, for the first three months, there was no light allowed as they drove along the road. Not only lights at the front of the car, there was no dashboard lights allowed to be turned on either. Life, as a result, became extremely hazardous. 
Trams became known as the silent peril uh, because pedestrians would be ploughed over uh, in the middle of the streets. Uh, pedestrians would run into all kinds of street furniture. They would, uh, they would be hit by cars. In the first four months of the war, 4,133 people were killed on the roads in Great Britain, three-quarters of whom were pedestrians. And all of that before the Germans had even dropped a single bomb. For people living through that period, it must have been terrifying. I can't imagine what it would be like uh, to, to walk the streets at night not knowing if you were going to be ploughed over by a car or by a tram, let alone not knowing if at any moment the Luftwaffe might come over and drop bombs. As the war went on, the rules were, were softened a little bit uh, and things became a, a little bit more easy going in some senses, but imagine still what it must have been like six years later when the war finally ended, when those people no longer had to put up their blackout curtains, that they would take them down for the last time and when the, and when the lights in the streets were switched on. It's impossible to imagine, I think, for us how much hope a single street light being on in the middle of the night must have, must have, how much hope that must have given to those people. Imagine after years of darkness, after years of oppression, the light had finally come. And similarly, though in a much more profound sense, that's exactly what Matthew is talking about in the verses that we read this morning. Matthew in this uh, second half of chapter 4 uh, of his biography of Jesus It tells us that the people living in darkness had seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. A few weeks ago, uh, in chapter 3, we heard about John the Baptist and his ministry preparing the way for Jesus. He was sent by God to prepare for Jesus to visit people on earth. And it's with the news of John being put in prison that Jesus decides to begin his own public ministry and, and Jesus takes over from John. We're told that Jesus begins his ministry by leaving Nazareth uh, where he'd grown up and he goes to Galilee. And the reason for that, Matthew tells us, was to fulfil an expectation from the Old Testament. So remember how he's seen all the way through the beginning of Matthew that Matthew is trying to show us that that people were expecting or that God had shown that a certain type of king and Messiah would come and that Jesus is the one who fulfills those expectations. And Matthew tells us that, that uh, Jesus, beginning his uh, ministry in Galilee, was done to fulfill another one of those expectations. The expectation that we read before that a light would shine in Galilee. The quote uh, that that uh, Matthew is using here is from Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, if you've got your Bible with you, uh, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's, uh, there's probably some on the table at the back still that you might want to go and grab. Uh, but if you, if you do have a Bible, turn with me to Isaiah, which is just after halfway. You've got Psalms, uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs and then Isaiah. And I just want to read a few verses from the end of chapter 8 into chapter 9. 
So chapter 8 from verse 19, Isaiah was a prophet sent by God about 740 BC, so that's 740 years before Jesus came and began his ministry and this is what God said through Isaiah. Chapter 8 verse 19, when men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their God and their king. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honour Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. These words uh, that God spoke through Isaiah were first of all addressed to the people of Judah. They were addressed to the to uh, the two tribes in the south of Israel after the, uh, and it was speaking about uh, the time that would come when the ten tribes would be uh, exiled by, and they would be conquered by Assyria uh, as, as an act of judgement by God. So the ten northern tribes, they were going to be exiled by God and conquered uh, and God was going to judge them. Uh, th- those people, those ten northern tribes were going to come under the judgement of God uh, because of their sin, because they'd, uh, they'd inquired of the dead instead of God. They'd turned away from God. they trusted in other things than God. Instead of receiving God's words of life about himself, instead of trusting God's promises, they trusted everything but God and God's promises. And so rightly, they were going to be judged. And yet God says to those people, my light will come. It's, just, it's uh, interesting, isn't it? We have that phrase, a glimmer of hope, you know. Uh, when things are bad, but there's just this, this slight hope, we, we talk about a glimmer. You know, it's picking up on that kind of light theme as well. There's this glimmer of hope. But what God is talking about, what Isaiah is talking about, and what Matthew is picking up on is more than just a glimmer of hope. It's not just a faint candle which is in danger of being, uh, being blown out. This is the full brightness of the glory of God. God is saying to these people who have been judged, my light will shine. 
Uh, It's easy, I think, for us to believe, isn't it, in one sense, that God is powerful to save. You know, uh, I guess once you accept that God is the mighty creator of the whole universe, it makes sense that he can save people. It makes sense that he's able to do it. What's often hard for us to accept, I think, is that he's willing. You might think, will God really save me? I'm such a terrible person. Look at all the things that I've done. I'm so full of sin. I'm so full of hypocrisy. I'm so full of mixed motives. But on what people did God say that his light would shine? Who was it who would first receive the good news about God's salvation? Was it those who had God's favour already? No, it was those in darkness and the shadow of death. It was those under the judgment of God, wasn't it? Who were the first to receive the light of God, the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was those who were God's enemies who got the gospel first. It's to those people, Matthew says, that the light of the gospel came. And it's the same for us, no matter where we are. If we are in the darkest places, under the deepest wrath of God, as we are without Jesus Christ, there is no better qualification in one sense for receiving the light of the gospel because it was to those people, it was to the enemies of God that the gospel of Jesus Christ first came. So Matthew tells us first of all that, uh, that, that very reality that it was the light first came to those who were in darkness. But, but here is the question, I suppose. In what sense did the light dawn? In what sense is it, is it right to say that, the light, that some light dawned on these people? How did the beginning of Jesus' ministry create light in the midst of spiritual darkness? Uh, even though in, uh, in most Bibles, the end of chapter 4 in Matthew uh, is divided up into three sections. So if you're back in Matthew, you might notice that there's uh, three headings in, in, uh, in most Bibles. Well, even though there's those three headings, those three sections, all those sections are really connected. They're all really talking about the one same thing. The thing which connects those three sections is the word Galilee, the place Galilee. The old, uh, in, in the first section, the Old Testament quote tells us that the light would shine, God's light would shine in Galilee. And then the two sections after that go on to talk about things that Jesus did in Galilee. So in verses 18 to 22, uh, we have Jesus calling some of his disciples, where? By the Sea of Galilee. And then in verses 23 to 25, we have Jesus going throughout Galilee, teaching and healing. In other words, what Matthew wants us to see is how exactly how Jesus' ministry fulfills Isaiah's expectation. In the first section he's saying, look, this is what God promised. And in the next two sections he's saying, and look, this is how Jesus fulfilled that. This is how we know Jesus really is who he said he is. So the next two sections that we're going to look at are really unpacking this idea that in 30 AD, about 2,000 years ago, God's long-promised light of the gospel dawned. Well, how did that happen? 
Well, the first thing that Jesus says when he begins his ministry is repent for the kingdom of God is near. Now, that's exactly the same message you might remember that John the, Bas- uh, John the Baptist was preaching. John was also saying repent for the kingdom of God is near. John was uh, calling people to choose uh, between sin and God. Uh, He was asking them to choose between a life of sin or a life uh, which comes from the powerful hand of God. So the question I suppose is how then have things moved on from John? You You know, if a light has dawned, if this fantastic light of the gospel has dawned in Jesus' ministry, how, how is Jesus preaching the same message as John? How does that show that anything has moved on? If Jesus is just saying, repent for the kingdom of God is near and that's what John was saying, well, you know, how, how have things changed? The answer comes in the next few verses. As Jesus is walking along uh, the Sea of Galilee, he does something quite radical. He calls Peter and his brother Andrew to follow me. John, you see, was calling people to choose between sin and God. He was choosing to choose between righteousness and life, uh, which comes from God's hand, or, or the death, which comes from sin. But Jesus is doing something different. Jesus is calling people to follow himself. In a sense, what Jesus is doing is narrowing the the call to repentance. In the past, the call to repentance was the call to return to God and to trust in God, but now what Jesus is saying is that that call to repentance has narrowed to focus on the person of himself. It's impossible to say now, for instance, I trust God, I've turned to God, but I don't want to have anything to do with Jesus because the whole Reality of God's light is bound up in Jesus and who he is. So in one sense it's the same message that John was preaching, repent and and turn to God, but in a sense it's moved on because it's now repent and follow me. God is saying to us uh, through Matthew as well in this passage, that there's no better illustration of what that looks like than what these disciples did when they left everything and followed Jesus. What does that look like? You know, what does it look like to repent and to follow Jesus? Well, these disciples, their actions show us really clearly. The disciples leaving and following Jesus is a concrete example of repentance. Uh, It's a concrete example of leaving one life to begin another. And yet their example, as simple as it is, is strangely confronting. You see, there's a problem. I don't know if you picked up on it, but there's a problem with what these disciples do. There's a, there's a challenge. Their lives weren't openly sinful. These guys were fishermen, right? They were fishermen catching fish with their dad in a boat. And Jesus comes along and he says to them, follow me. And they leave their life and they follow Jesus. What's the point? The point is that repentance is not just about turning away from big sins. It's not just about turning away from porn and greed and selfishness and whatever else you can think of. 
It's about turning away from a life centred around me to a life centred around Jesus. What's the point? The point is this. Whatever you are doing, if you're not doing it to follow Jesus, then it's sin. Isn't that extraordinary? What an an incredible, all-encompassing claim. Jesus is saying that he expects nothing less than the complete reorientation of your life around him. It's all about him. For Peter and Andrew and James and John, that meant nothing less than giving up their day jobs to be missionaries. But it meant a whole lot more than that. It meant reorienting their lives around Jesus in every aspect. And if you repent and turn to Jesus and follow Jesus, it won't mean just one thing will change. It won't just mean that you'll read the Bible more often, but it will mean that every aspect of your life is totally reconfigured to be about Jesus and about following him. It means that your whole life will be centred around Jesus Christ. That's the light that these disciples saw, you see. God promised through Isaiah that a king would come, a king who would reign and who would be followed. And the moment that those four disciples turned from their own lives to following Jesus, that light dawned. The king was followed for the first time and the light of the gospel, the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ, that light began to shine on the earth. And now, today, whenever a person turns from their own life to following Jesus Christ, the light of God dawns. That is what, that is how the light uh, of God's light shone on these people in darkness It shone when these people turned from their own lives to following Jesus Christ. But Matthew gives us uh, another piece of evidence uh, that Jesus' arrival in Galilee, uh, that in Jesus' arrival in Galilee, God's light has dawned on humanity. In verse uh, 23 to 25, we read how Jesus went through Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralysed, and he healed them. So Jesus was going around Galilee, he was preaching the good news of the kingdom, and he was, and he was healing people. But what, what was that good news? You know, What was the good news that he was actually preaching? Uh, I guess that word good news or or the word gospel as it's sometimes translated uh, is a word that for most Christians is is pretty commonplace. But what's interesting is that in the Old Testament it's not a really common expression. There's only uh, a few times when that particular word is used. But in Isaiah 49 there's a really interesting verse uh, about what God was going to do in the future. Uh, and you, you might know it, this is, uh, this is what it says. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. 
What was the good news that Jesus came to preach? It was this. Behold your God. That's what it was. Here I am. That was, that was the message that Jesus came to preach, the gospel, the good news. Here I am. To the people living in darkness, here I am. The same thing that Isaiah promised in Isaiah chapter 9 as well. Who, in Isaiah 9, who was the light that was coming to shine on those in darkness? Who was the child who was going to be born upon, whom, upon whose shoulders would be the government of the entire world? Verse 6 of chapter 9, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus preached the good news to the people. Here I am, behold your God. And he proved it, he demonstrated it by healing every disease and healing every sickness. Who can do that? I have a friend uh, who has been sick for three or four years now and the doctors, despite all the technology, despite all the wisdom, despite all the modern medicine, don't know what's wrong with him. Let alone, are they able to provide a cure? But that didn't happen to Jesus, did it? He could cure every disease and every sickness. Look at the list of conditions that people were in when they came to him. Severe pain, demon possession, seizures, paralysis, and he healed them all. It would be a, a, a miracle today if someone was healed from paralysis, let alone 2,000 years ago. But that's what Jesus did. And it makes perfect sense that he could do that because he was mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He was the creator of the world. And if he made it, he can fix it again. Do you see what Jesus was saying here to the people in preaching the gospel and in healing people? He was not saying to them, follow me and fix your life up. He was saying, follow me and I'll make you new. That's what he was saying. Turn to me and I will change you. I will save you. I will bring about the righteousness which God requires. It's not a self-help program with new parameters. No, it's a God-helping-us program centred around his son, Jesus Christ. What was the result of Jesus doing all these miracles and healing all these people? Verse 25, large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea and the region across the Jordan followed him. Who was the king that they were following? It was none other than God himself, none other than the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father who restores people and remakes people and makes them new. Do you remember the question uh, that the ministry of John the Baptist posed back in chapter 3? The question that, Jesus, that John the Baptist asked was, how do you prepare for meeting with God? How do you prepare to meet God? And here is the astonishing reality. God has come to meet us. God has come to meet us in Jesus Christ. And who did he come to? He came to the people in darkness. He came to God's enemies, the people under the wrath of God. He came to meet us, to save us and introduce us back to God. He came to call people to turn from sin 
and to choose the life which comes from his hand. He came to call people to follow him and to trust him. Here is the message that Matthew wants us to grasp, which Jesus first preached. Repent, says Jesus, and follow me. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, every single one of us are sinners. Uh, Apart from Christ, we are under your wrath. Lord, because we've tried to live our lives without you and yet, Lord, what tremendous hope it gives us to hear again or maybe for the first time that on those living under your wrath and under your judgement, on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, the light of your gospel has shone. Lord, you haven't come to save the righteous but to save sinners through your perfect Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you for that wonderful news and that glorious hope. Father, we ask that uh, you would enable us to repent and to turn to Jesus, to turn away from following our own lives and to seek your forgiveness for that and to reorient ourselves to follow your Son. Lord, help us to do that not for our own sake, Lord, but for the sake of Jesus Christ who is becoming every day more and more the great King who you promised. Father, we ask that he may rule uh, in our lives And Father, we ask that he may rule not only in our lives but in the lives of many in this town and many in this country and many in this world. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.